Welcome to VMN Volume 2, Episode 2, recorded on October 24th, 2020. VMN is produced and distributed out of unceded Abenaki territory in so-called northeastern Vermont. We seek to provide a platform for movements pushing for liberation in this area and beyond. This week's episode features an, ep- an interview with Vermont congressional candidate Chris Halali. Welcome, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, can you tell me a little bit about your run for Congress and what uh, prompted you to do it? Sure, of course. Um, so I'm running for Congress for Vermont's sole at-large congressional district for the House of Representatives. And uh, I guess what really prompted me was that was the combination of the pandemic and the brutal, um, you know, uh, barbarity with which the working class has been treated as a result. And, of course, the heightening contradictions of the capitalist system at this time. Uh, the wars of empire, um, the brutality with which the state has been persecuting black and brown and indigenous peoples and the working class and peoples all over the world. So I said that now was the time. No more, you know, wasting time in a book clubs. It's time to get out and to start organizing the working class and spreading our ideas. So that was really the impetus for my run. Um, of course, I have no delusions of grandeur about winning. And if I did win, you'd have to prepare for a funeral, I think. So, <laughs> you know. But but I think that what's been awesome so far about the run has been the fact that we've been able to get our ideas out much in a much wider and more public venue than we can usually do. So, for example, all of the media exposure, even the negative ones, have allowed us to at least give our side of the uh, of the of different positions and uh, sort of. Uh, you know, what we seek to accomplish. So that's been, that's been, uh, you know, sort of the run so far. Um, it's been, uh, widely, uh, covered here in Vermont nationally and then internationally as well. It's generated a lot of interest and I think it's put Vermont on the map in terms of real left organizing, not necessarily like further to the left of Bernie, right? The Bernie era is over. It's what do we do from here on out? And I think that that's where we can get activists and organizers who want a real transformation of the capitalist system and the move towards socialism. Yes. Uh, so I saw you, you had got positive coverage from uh, seven days. That's unusual. They usually savage uh, uh, <laughs> left, real leftist uh, candidates. How did you manage that? <laughs> I, don't, I, I guess I interpret it still as negative coverage, but I'm glad you see it as positive. They must do a number on some other people. <laughs> yeah, they... Uh, they 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 really hate the Liberty Union candidates. So, <laughs> well, I'll tell you one thing. I mean, Kevin Kelly came out here to the farm, and we talked for two hours, very frank and open conversation about, you know, my past, my history, what I believe, and sort of where we want things to go. And uh, hopefully, he saw that the you know it wasn't just uh, some you know voice crying out in the wilderness, but it was somebody who has dedicated themselves to the movement, who has struggled, who continues to struggle. Uh, I've been arrested. I've been on the front lines, as I'm sure we'll discuss in a little bit. And, um, you know, I'm committed to the cause. So it's one thing to, you know, for, for maybe sometimes some people run and it's just, you know, okay, let's run. But it's another time when you get, you know, like yourself, committed lifelong activists and organizers who want to transform the system. I think you have to take these people seriously. So what international and national press have you gotten so, uh, of course, I've been in, uh, in the Greek press a lot because my family background in Greece and my family having been longtime members of the Communist Party of Greece and having fought against the Nazis uh, in World War II. And uh, one family member, my great uncle, having been executed 
by by the fascists. So they've been covering me a lot. Greek newspapers have written about us. Um, I've been on the Greek radio, um, and uh, we've been in Chinese press. China has covered the campaign because uh, I studied in China. I have a master's degree in Marxist philosophy from a Chinese university, um, and uh, I, I, I talk a lot about um, you know ending the new Cold War and stopping the chi- anti-China, anti-Russia hysteria, which has plagued now the Democrats and the Republicans. And uh, we've also gotten press in Germany, in uh, one of the the worker parties and newspaper, also Austria. Uh, Spain. Um, we've gotten press in Spain. And right now I just spoke uh, to somebody in Moscow today um, from the Communist Party, the Russian Federation. So it looks like uh, they will be doing an interview with them as well. They're just everybody's excited because there's a real alternative now, at least somebody who can speak some sanity and about the impending nuclear catastrophe that's imminent with all of the end of these treaties and the more belligerent, uh, you know, war hawks and warmongers in this country. And somebody who speaks about Nuclear weapons, climate, emergency, you know, ending the wars, ending empire. So they like that. It's a breath of fresh air instead of people who want to maintain NATO and a thousand military bases abroad. I mean, yeah. it's kind of crazy. Yeah, <laughs> just very few people are opposed to the U.S. imperialism when you dig them in the political uh, arena. It's Absolutely. What's, un- what's unusual is that uh, that you seem to be getting good press for it as an anti-imperialist that's that's a good thing it's a positive thing and i hope it speaks to a transformation in the working class consciousness that these wars and this empire is unsustainable we can't do it we can't do it how do you differentiate yourself against the far right people who are also trying to put on the mask of anti-imperialism i i guess the main the main thing is my anti-imperialism is always with the internationalist position right uh, right-wing anti-imperialists have a very national core, and they don't really care about internationalism in that way. We, we are internationalists, you know. I look and I see what Cuba is doing, you know, and what Fidel used to say, medicos y no bombas, you know, that we want to export doctors, not bombs. And I say that that's what I want. That's the future I want. I want an international community where people can go and serve one another's peoples, take care of each other, raise all the standards of living for everyone, provide comfort and care and dignity to everyone around the world. And right now, the U.S. instead provides munitions and bombs and, and drones and all of this stuff. That's what we provide to the world. We don't provide anything else but regime change and then drones, if you don't listen, and, and F-35s and, and B-52s and all this stuff. And I want to tra- transform, you know, our society in a different direction. So the right wing tends to, you know, we can agree on anti-imperialism, but where we end up falling apart is what, do, what kind of society we want to build. And I want to build a society for everyone. And that's one that's internationalist and can work with everyone around the world with mutual aid and solidarity and dignity. They want to close the borders and have an isolationist kind of idea that somehow America for the Americans. Well, wait a minute. Who's American? All I see is different colors around here and all the genders and all the religions and things like that. So their their ideology quickly collapses. Their anti-imperialism is merely to provide a, an isolated United States just for Americans, which in and of itself is also utopian. We live, in a, we live in a world that is only one planet with these 190 plus countries. We all have to work together to combat the big issues of the world, including the climate emergency and, and you know, pandemics like we're living with right now. You know, one country can't just do it on their own. We have to rely on each other. And I think that's what our big difference is. Yes. So what, what, what do you think about... Um what needs to be done for the pandemic? 
one of the biggest things I think uh, for the pandemic is we need to provide everybody with uh, at least the, the, the bare income. You know, everybody should be told, okay, stay at home. We'll do the distancing and everything, but we'll provide for you. You know, you can't just lock everything down and not provide people with money and resources. People have to work. But if you can tell everybody, okay, stay at home and you'll get the same paycheck you always get. I mean, yeah, of course. That, that'll help the society. That will alleviate a lot of the problems. That will help stop the spread. If we had a society that had free health care, free high quality universal health care, people wouldn't be afraid to go to the hospitals. If we had more hospitals and more doctors, we wouldn't have to worry about a lot of things that we worry about. If instead of building bombs, we built medical equipment and respirators and we had a, pharma, a nationalized pharmaceutical industry that was open access and transparent where vaccine technology could exist for everyone to understand what's going on, who's putting whatever in it that was open for the people. I think that's much better than having private corporations that do their own dealings and have their own mentality on what they want to do. So ultimately, the pandemic has revealed that capitalism cannot provide for the working class. It can provide for the people. Ultimately, only a society for all of the people can provide for their basic needs. And I think that that has been revealed in this crisis. And that's, and that's ultimately when you look at different countries out in the world and their responses, you can see a wide array of the responses based on what kind of society they want and what kind of society they are building. And the U.S. is by far one of the most barbaric in this regard. Yes. So what do you think the, uh, the issue of intellectual property, how is, how is that harming people? Ultimately, like for me, I don't really believe in intellectual property. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm someone who, you know, I think that, uh, you know, a, a property like mental faculties and knowledge cannot be commodified. It can't. It belongs to all people. You know, I can't, you know, my ideas are my own through a synthesis of everything that I've learned. Right. So the grade school teacher who taught me the alphabet, the second grade teacher who taught me arithmetic, all of them have combined in me. Knowledge is a collective enterprise. Right. So when people talk about intellectual property, I don't I don't look at, you know, something as being the product of one person. It's the product of a collective. It's the product of humanity at large, right? And so I think that that's a really important concept that we have to move towards. And I think that when people do things, not out of the love of getting money or out of the love of getting power, but out of the love of serving people and being, and, you know, being one with the people and taking care of each other, then we won't have to worry about a lot of these issues, you know? And so a lot of the, the big debates around technology and especially intellectual property is a big thing in regards to China, you know, like, oh, China's stealing all technology. Well, we stole all the technology, too. I mean, we came here and we rampaged and we took, we destroyed other countries so that their intellectuals could come here and have brain drain. And so we could build the empire that we built. So I don't, I, you know, that kind of stuff. I don't think that, you know, for example, vaccine technology. You know, if you look at someone like, the, you know, Salk with the polio vaccine, it was free. He gave it willingly. That's what I want. That's the kind of vaccine I'll trust. I'll trust the vaccine where the scientist says, I don't want a penny from it. It's for the people, serve the people, and everything like that. I don't trust the other vaccines that all these big corporations with Pentagon, you know, budgets and everybody's getting some kickback from the neocons. I don't necessarily, what are you doing? I don't have any quality control. I don't know. And some of these technologies are patented and top secret. We can't even see the recipe. So wait a minute. How am I supposed to put this in my body if I can't even see the equation? Just give me the equation. So I think that that's where we're coming up to the limits of the capitalist system and the limits of our current existence. 
We need to move to something where we do things out of the love of doing them, out of, you know, a humanity, you know, like sort of a humanistic reasons, not for profit and our power and our clicks. And I think that that's where we begin to part ways with people who might, for example, like you spoke, you know, right wing, like they say libertarians, they might agree with us up to a point on war and empire, but they won't agree to these things. That's what differentiates us. Yes. So can you tell me what kind of activism you've been doing over the last uh, year or two? Uh, over the last year or two, I've been doing a lot of anti-imperialist activism. So I've been focusing a lot on uh, ending the new Cold War with Russia and China. Uh, you know, I went to Venezuela um, uh, last year. I was able to travel to Venezuela in 2019. Um, I was able to attend some conferences in 2018, anti-imperialist ones, especially the one in Dublin, an anti-NATO conference. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, Black Lives Matter, we've been on the streets um, with the struggle of the black proletariat and brown and indigenous people. Um, I've been very active, of course, in the uh, anti-war movement because I'm Iranian, dual citizen. And, of course, the war with Iran was imminent this past January and February. Very scary time. So I've been pushing uh, for that. And, of course, as always, my activism on Palestine. Um, Palestine's a very important uh, issue for me. Um, you know, I fight hard against uh, the apartheid settler colonial state of Israel and the Zionist regime, and I'm really focused on the Palestinian liberation. And I don't, and I, and I believe strongly that you can't be for Black lives or Brown lives or Indigenous lives if you're not flying the flag of Palestine with that and with them in solidarity. So that's been something that's been really important to me, working very hard on that. And we're working. We had some video screenings and some presentations before the pandemic hit. Um, and we were being very successful. We had dozens of, uh, of college kids and young people and older community members come and talk about the Palestine. And I'm so honored to be endorsed by the Vermonters for Justice in Palestine. Um, I was endorsed uh, by them and I was also endorsed by the Yemen Solidarity Council with the approval of the government of Yemen in Sana'a. So I'm very, very honored to be to be, have been, um, you know, endorsed by these great organizations of peoples who are fighting for their self-determination and sovereignty. Can you speak a little more on what uh, needs to be done for Palestine? So, uh, you know, this is where we get into the, the nitty-gritty details, um, and I think that this is where there are differences emerge on the left. Um, I believe now in a one-state solution. I believe that there's no possibility for a two-state solution. Uh, settler colonialism is so entrenched there that there's not a possibility to go back to 1967 borders. Uh, I do believe, for example, the Golan Heights should go back to Syria. That's easy to do since the Golan is militarized by Israel and not a big population. So that should go back to Syria. It belongs to Syria. It's Syrian sovereign territory. In terms of Palestine, I believe in a one-state solution, one democratic, secular, socialist state. Not with any religion, not with any ethnicity at the top, but a state for all the workers and farmers there, right? And that will alleviate the contradictions that come from the ethnic chauvinisms or the religious hegemony and, you know, sort of, um, you know, sort of either a Jewish uh, state or a Muslim state or a Christian. I don't want any of those states. I want a secular state for all the people. And I and I'm not so much concerned. I would love it to be called Palestine. But whatever the people themselves come up with the name, I have no problem. But it must have the right of return. It must allow for all of the people who were forcibly expelled during the Nakba, the catastrophe the ethnic cleansing of Palestine, to return with their descendants, everybody to have citizenship, and to rebuild that country, to denuclearize it, right? Because, of course, Israel has nuclear weapons. And I think that only then could you ensure peace and stability in the region. 
This conflict is not a conflict of religion. That's what liberals and conservatives like to portray it as. A centuries, a millennia long conflict between Jews and Muslims. Not true. Jews were living there amidst Muslims and Christians for thousands of years. They were living there in the Ottoman Empire, A-OK, right? Mizrahi Jews, not European Jews who came. The real problem now is between settler colonialism. It's between the Zionist project to transform uh, the area of Palestine into a Jewish-only state. That's the problem. It's not, it has nothing to do with religion. It's a political problem, and it can only be solved politically. So that's, why, that's my position. And I, and I hope that comrades slowly come to the idea that we can be much more effective by pushing Israel on the fact that it's not democratic, because that ha- that's how you can really, you know, catch them, because they keep on saying, we are the biggest democracy in the Middle East, we're the greatest democracy in the Middle East. No, you're not. Your Arabs are treated as second-class citizens. If you really want to be a democracy, give everyone under your control full citizenship and full rights. That will transform things very quickly, because they can't do that, because the demographics make them now the minority. So that's where we can push them hard. Any idea in the two-state solution for me is not correct. Of course, whatever the Palestinians want to do, it's up to them. It's their situation. They're on the ground. It's whatever the Palestinian movement wants, and I support them in that. But in my own perspective, I don't believe a two-state solution is attainable at this point. So what do you have to say about some of the other former colonial states in the Mideast about the situation in there, because the way I see it is the problems we see in Syria and Iran and other places are, they, they grew out of the Treaty of Paris and the, the way that the Western powers chopped up the Mideast in an unnatural way. How do you see a solution in these areas for the people of these areas? So I think, I think ultimately, I think ultimately, uh, to solve a lot of the issues and being ethnically Kurdish, I can tell you that, uh, for example, would I want to see Iran balkanized and turned into multiple areas and multiple, uh, countries? No, because I think that that actually ends up serving the interests of U.S. NATO imperialism. Because if you have a lot smaller countries, easier to, to control them, right? So right now I say that Yes, there were a lot of mistakes made. For example, Armenia should be a lot bigger, right? Kurdistan should exist. Uh, there's a lot of different, uh, of different ethnic groups. For example, I'm Lur. We have a whole area called Luristan. Should be, you know, four or five million people. Should be an own country. It's not. It's currently in Iran. And I don't think we have any real issue. There's not really a, a movement for that. I think a lot of individual movements have existed because of different situations within those big countries under the Shah of Iran, under Mustafa Kemal Ataturk in Turkey, and under these very harsh nationalisms. I think right now, I think the best thing to do is to focus on anti-imperialism, to prevent the U.S. going in and trying to carve up these regions, because there's a plan, of course. There's a big plan. And I think that what right now the position of some of the Kurds um, in our community is... Uh, let's focus more on our rights within these states than on creating an independent state that will quickly spiral out of control in terms of the regional dynamics, right? And I think that ultimately that position bears fruit, right? Mm-hmm. The fight for rights and language and, you know, um, ethnic culture 
within those states. And of course, there are some states that are better. Iran is much better in this. Iran allows the language, Kurdish language to flourish, allows that people wear their ethnic dress. That's not a big issue. In states like Turkey, it's a very big issue. Very big. I mean, Turkey is where an actual people's war is going on. I mean, there's like 10 parties, nine communist parties and the PKK fighting with active guerrilla forces in the mountains, fighting against the Turkish army, which is a NATO army. So I support that people's war. Syria is a bit more complex, I think. And that's because of the history with the PKK. Don't forget, um, Abdullah Ojlan, the leader of the PKK, who's imprisoned on the island of Imrali, was the guest of Hafez al-Assad, Bashar al-Assad's father, for almost 20 years. He had the base. The PKK was headquartered in Damascus. It wasn't until Turkey threatened to invade Syria that Hafez al-Assad asked Ojlan to leave, and that's when he was arrested with CIA, Mossad, and MIT, the Turkish intelligence equivalent of the CIA and, and Mossad. So the Kur- even the Kurdish uh, community and the Kurdish leadership in Syria says we don't want an independent state. We want to have autonomy within a federated Syria. Now, for the Syrian people, it's up to them. But the, the biggest concern I have is that the U.S. still maintains a military presence in the region for what? And, and, and uh, Trump has said it openly, for the oil, right? And that's really to stifle the central government in Damascus and its allied forces, the Russians, the Iranians, Hezbollah, from getting the oil to resupply them. And the U.S. Some, somehow is able to ally itself with the Kurdish uh, movement, of which they let them, you know, suffer in Afrin, and able to ally themselves with the moderate rebels who are actually jihadists in Idlib under Turkish uh, leadership. So the conflict is very, is very, very complex. And I think right now I'm, I'm listening to and I'm, and I'm hearing the community, and I think the biggest thing is the U.S. and coalition should leave. And Syrian people, Kurdish, Assyrian, Armenian, Alevi, Sunni, Shia, should all get together and figure out the future of Syria without imperialist aggression. But the U.S. has no real interest in the Kurds and it has no real interest to leave. It has an interest, a vested interest in maintaining those oil fields, which, by the way, an interesting tidbit on my time in Rojava, the oil fields in the Northeast had headquarters with Chinese characters. Why? Before the Syrian civil war, Chinese state oil company Sinopec had signed a multi-billion dollar deal with the Syrian government to exploit and um, develop the oil fields in the Northeast. So the U.S. maintaining its control over the oil fields also means another dagger in, uh, in the back of China who had agreed with the Syrian government to develop the oil fields and help them with their oil industry. So it's very complex. Uh, it's very much all up in the air. And you can see, for example, that Balkanizing, for example, Iraq has not stabilized Iraq at all. You have now really three sections of Iraq, you know, Shia-controlled, Sunni, Triangle, and, you know, Kurdistan in the north. And Turkey has bases within Iraqi's border. There's constant bombardment on all sides. And Iraq is really a failed state, you know. So I don't wish that on anybody. And right now, right now we are in the midst of a war in Nagorno-Karabakh, in Artsakh, right, between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Once more, fighting between two peoples who once were Soviet brothers and sisters, now fighting to the brutal death over which nationalism prevails. Of course, I choose the Armenian side. I know the situation very well. My commanders in, 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 uh, in Syria were Armenians, and they, were, they had also fought in, Nagor- in the first conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh in the early 90s. So I know the situation well. 
their famous comrades like Monty Melkonian, who went and fought in Nagorno-Karabakh. He was from the U.S., became a general in the Armenian army. But, of course, you see the side of reaction there, Azerbaijan with Turkey and Israel uh, fighting to basically ethnically cleanse Artsakh from the Armenian population. So I think that it's very important for comrades in the U.S. to understand the very complex nuances of areas in the world which didn't have borders, which were part of large empires, which recently collapsed, as you were saying, you know, you had Ottoman, and then you had Safavid, and later on Qajar dynasty. So you had big empires, multi-ethnic, multi-religious, multilinguistic, lots of different people, and now all of a sudden you have these artificial boundaries, and that creates a lot of problems. Ultimately, my hope is that all these countries can maintain secular governments that, that, that cannot be so nationalistic, but can allow for a flourishing of multi-ethnic uh, sort of countries. But we see that uh, Lebanon is the perfect case study in the region. Whenever you have a country like that, different imperial powers take different sides for their own political gain. So in Lebanon, France took the side of the Catholics. The U.S. came in and supported Christian groups. You know, Russia came in and supported other groups. And you ended up having, and Iran came and supported the Shia. Saudis came in and supported the Sunnis. So you end up having a civil war where all of these different ethnic groups that live together in harmony have been weaponized by outside forces. So that's a big concern for me, and that's how I see the region right now. I see the region as first and foremost end to U.S. NATO imperialism in the region, uh, kicking out all of the aggressive powers, and slowly allowing these countries to develop and to focus on building strong infrastructure and strong you know, sovereignty in order to stand in a region that has been under brutal occupation and bombardment. I'd like to talk about your time in fighting in Rojava, but before we go uh, to that, I would like to understand a little bit more about the nature of the Turkish government and Erdogan. Uh -huh. how, how do we need to look at uh, this? Is this a fascist government? What, what do we have here? On the question of Turkey, uh, it's a complex one from comrades on the ground. Different political um, movements on the left have different uh, interpretations. The one that I subscribe to the most is, this, is the uh, interpretation of Ibrahim Kaypakaya, who was the founder of the Turkish Communist Party Marxist-Leninist. He was a Maoist. He was executed in his early 20s. Um, and his idea in a famous text that he wrote was that uh, Turkey must be understood as a fascist regime. And it's a fascist regime from Mustafa Kemal Ataturk to today. And that is because of its strong, uh, not only its strong uh, corporatist state, and a strong central government, but it's ultra-nationalism, right? And this is, of course, like Nemutlu Turkum Diyane, like uh, how sweet it is to be a Turk, is everywhere in Turkey. Uh, Turkification was a, was a brutal program from the central government to all different ethnicities. So, for example, if I'm Armenian or Greek or Kurdish or, or any other Circassian, any other ethnicity, a Syrian, in or an Arab in Turkey... I am subjected to Turkification, right? I have to identify that I am living in a Turkish republic, right? And so I either have to become Turkish, right? Or I have to maintain an identity that's separate from that, but I'll never be seen as fully Turkish, right? A full Turkish citizen. So I think that this is the one that I subscribe to the most. Turkey, for sure, is a capitalist state. That's for sure. There are some people who say that it still has some feudal elements in rural areas in the east where the Kurds and Alevis are and different groups. Um, but ultimately, I think that uh, Turkey can be seen as a fascist state. And Erdogan 
is moving even more so in that direction, right? So if that is the case, if we see Turkey as a fascist state, um, we must understand the, the complex nature of the various conflicts going on in the region through that lens, I think. Thank you. It's always been confusing a little bit what was going on there. Can you talk about how you ended up in Rojava? What was the, how was your travels there and how did you ideologically decide to be there? Sure, sure, of course. Um, so I was working with uh, Kurdish refugees in Greece in 2016. Um, for many months I was in Greece. I was working in refugee camps and then I was working in a squatted community where I was living and helping refugees resettle helping them with language, helping them with the papers and things like that. So I was very involved with the Kurdish community. And finally, after reading and studying and learning for many years about the conflicts overseas, I finally decided to go. Um, and the comrades helped me. The Kurdish comrades helped me. I flew to Sweden. And from Sweden, I flew to Iraq, to Suleimania. And from Suleimania, we went to the mountains. And I was in the PKK's camps, which was amazing. The first time seeing actual guerrillas in like underground tunnels and ah, oh, just, you know, it felt like I was, you know, Che, I was going into the, <laughs> of course, the bad part was at nighttime when you heard the bombardment because the Turkish uh, Air Force and other coalition Air Force were above us. See, on, on the Iraqi side, we were terrorists. On the Syrian side, we were freedom fighters. So it was very funny because, you know, most of the comrades in Syria belong to the PKK, right? They just called it the YPG because then the U.S. government can support them because the PKK is a terrorist organization. But once they crossed over into Iraq, they now were PKK terrorists and the U.S. was helping to bomb them. So on one side, they were arming them. On the other side, they were bombing them and helping Turkey do it. So very, very complex situation on the ground. So from there, we crossed over illegally into Syria and to the northeast, uh, into the area known as Rojava. I went uh, to the YPG International Academy where I spent... A uh, month and a half training. And then I went to my base, which was with the Turkish Communist Party Marxist-Leninists, with its guerrilla arm, Tico. Um, and I was based with them. I did months of training with them, advanced training. And then I went to the front line, to Raqqa Phase 4, where I was involved in a push of 20 kilometers to the city of Raqqa, which was the capital of the caliphate, quote-unquote. And uh, I saw frontline combat. Uh, you know, I was shot at. Mortar attacks. Um, I, a drone dropped a grenade on my on my position on my bunker, and uh, you know it was uh, it missed by a couple yards. I had it landed closer. I don't know if I'd be here now. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean uh, it was it was war full on. U- U.S. aircraft bombing, uh, missile attacks, uh, suicide bombs like uh, V beds. We see vehicle borne IEDs. So uh, you know ISIS would ram some checkpoint and it explode. Um, so there was a lot of this stuff going on. So uh, it wasn't until I was on the front line where I realized the severity of the U.S. bombardment. Oh, my gosh. And you can imagine that I'm on the front line. In front of me is ISIS, the capital. The U.S. is bombing all day and all night. I'm talking total war. You can imagine Dresden, you know, sort of a Slaughterhouse-Five, Kurt Vonnegut, you know, like just brutal, brutal bombardment of a city. Civilians and all, it doesn't matter. They bombarded it. And behind us were the U.S. Marines with howitzers. So the U.S. Marines were behind us, bombarding the city. Airplanes above us, F-35s, Apaches, drones, B-52s. They had it all. A-10s. You'd hear the Gatling guns from the A-10. 
And it wasn't until I was on the front line where I said, I am very uncomfortable with this situation. You know, I came here believing that this was a revolution I was fighting for. I ended up being on the U.S.'s side in the whole equation. The U.S. was the main military force. So we had a lot of conversations with comrades. Um, you know, there were a lot of disagreements. Some people left, of course. I eventually left um, because of these disagreements. And one of the big things was, um, the, one of the hardest things for me to deal with was I saw white phosphorus being used on Raqqa. And of course, I protested white phosphorus when it was used against Palestinians in Gaza. You know, in 2014 and, and, and recently. And so I'm thinking to myself, I've protested this illegal munition, which is horrible. It keeps burning. It burns through people. It's horrible. And here I am watching the U.S. dropping it. On, and you can see it because it has a very distinct pattern as it explodes. comes out and you can see all these bright shards coming out. And I just thought to myself, I, 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 I don't know. This isn't the revolution that I envisioned. And even on the ground, you know, you, I quickly realized that the the propaganda was a little bit different than the reality. The PKK maintained strong central control. The the workers collectives couldn't really function because it was a war. So people were like farming and doing what they needed to do or fighting or fleeing or in camps. So I, I realized that actually the better position was that this confirmed a Marxist-Leninist position for me. It confirmed that even though the PKK has said it, that it has transformed itself to democratic confederalism, it still operates like a vanguard party. <laughs> it still operates as a top-down organization because that's what needs to be done. You can't operate a guerrilla force of tens of thousands of people and an area that now has millions of people and operate its logistics and things like that in the middle of a war with Turkey on your border and now invading if you don't have strong central control and a strong party cadre that's involved in all aspects of life. So I, I don't fault them for that. I mean, that's the war. That's their situation. They have to do it. I do for, I do, you know, I, I am upset that, uh, so many anarchists have bought into the idea that somehow it's an anarchist revolution. It's not. It's okay. I went as an anarchist. I left as a communist, but I saw it from the ground. I saw it from within. I don't have to convince anybody to change their position. I simply, from my experiences being there and being involved with the party and seeing how the party works and being involved on both the war side and the political side, that I realized that it really is a, it's a strong, it's a strong structure, it's a centralized structure. And, and another big thing is that the Assad government, the central government of Damascus still had troops in Rojava. There are still bases where Syrian Arab army is based. They have whole neighborhoods. They have in Kamishli, they have the airport. In Hasaka, they have neighborhoods in a few other places. And we, we greeted each other. The statue of Hafez al-Assad is still there. In Kamishli, in the same, in the square, the Syrian, uh, flag flies. We use Syrian, uh, currency. So, the idea that somehow Rojava is going to become an independent state might be the fantasy of some neocons and U.S. administration officials, but the people on the ground don't want that. They don't want that because they ultimately know that the U.S. stabbed them in the back before, they ultimately are already making agreements with, with Damascus and with Moscow, right? The Kurds have sent delegations to Moscow. Moscow has sent generals to Rojava, and there are joint patrols, so that if Turkish aggression continues, and the U.S., for example, withdraws, there will be an opportunity for Russia and Syria to step in, the Syrian Arab army to step in to stop Turkey altogether, right? Because Russia is also powerful enough to tell Turkey no, right? They put their troops on the border, not, they're not going to do anything about that. Russia is also Turkey's big, one of the biggest trading partners. So there's a lot of things involved. Ultimately, the big thing is that 
um, you know, and this I was kind of upset with the Seven Days article. Janet Beale, uh, of course, the the the, the partner of uh, Murray Bookchin, said that I had joined the party of authoritarians and that somehow I hadn't read Murray Bookchin. No, I read The Ecology of Freedom, but I also went to a war zone where it, it didn't work. It didn't that you couldn't have libertarian municipalism and all these beautiful things in the midst of a war with empires coming and then you know the drones and bombs and missiles flying everywhere. No, you needed strong, disciplined organizations and guerrilla forces that said, yes, yes, uh, yes, sir. Boom, we're off. We're going to fight. We'll take that position. You take the hill. You take there. So, and and also, it's unfair because a lot of the guerrilla forces there are communists, right? They are Marxist Leninists. And by far, one of the best, one of the best um, uh, signs of this, I could say, um, was we were with a gr- group of uh, Kurdish uh, comrades and they started to sing a song. And I'm listening to it and I'm thinking to myself, my gosh, are you really singing this song? They said, of course. It was a song praising Stalin. Stalin digo sila usila. And it's a traditional Kurdish song from the PKK. And they started singing it. And I thought to myself, here I am. You know, and there were other anarchists there started getting upset. Oh, why are you singing Stalin? What? They said, well, Stalin supported the Kurds. You know, people don't remember the Republic of Mahabad in the, in the late 40s in Iran was supported by Stalin. It was the first and only Kurdish independent country. It was a socialist country supported by the Soviet Union. Uh, and the Soviet Union supported the Kurdish struggle throughout. Every single Communist Party Congress of the Soviet Union had the Kurdish question on as a main issue and what to do about the Kurdish question. And the Soviet Union provided arms to the PKK, right? Ojalan was close, was in the Soviet orbit, as they say. So I, I just, I, you know, part of me wants to help illustrate that the Middle East is complex, that alliances are always complex. And that you might read something and say, wow. And then you go there and you realize, oh, okay. <laughs> it's a little bit different. So that, I, that's my experience. Um, I have, I, you know, I'm very, I'm, I'm very honored to have gone and fought with such wonderful people, amazing comrades and hevals against a brutal enemy. Everybody fought against Daesh. Everybody did. Syria, Hezbollah, uh, Iran, Quds Force with Soleimani, who we assassinated. He was on the other side of the river, on the river fighting uh, ISIS. Russia was fighting ISIS. We were fighting ISIS. But who was helping ISIS? Saudi Arabia, UAE, Israel, US too, Turkey. So I just want to say that, you know, the the war against ISIS was just, but the balkanization of Syria is, I think, a nefarious plan. I think Turkey also has a hand in that too. They would like that. Um, They would like to see a weaker Syria because a strong Syria is against their interest, right? So that's my, those are my experiences from on the ground. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was an important part of my life and something I'll never forget. Of course, you can't forget that kind of experience. Are you still in touch? Do you still watch what's happening there? For sure, of course. And I'm still in touch with comrades over there. I still keep in contact in the wider movement. Um, the movement has, of course, so splintered along some of the issues I speak about as time has gone on. Um, and, um, yeah, of course, I still follow it very closely, uh, and I talk to comrades on the ground to see what's going on, and my position, of course, is known to all the comrades. Some people don't like my transformation. Others have said that it is, it is true, and some of them have, even who are still there, have transformed in a similar way. My understanding is Turkey has pushed in further, and there's been some regression in Rojava. Correct, correct. So it has taken, for example, the city that I was based at, Serekania, Reis al-Ain, has been taken by Turkey. The former base that I trained at and lived at is gone. It's in Turkish jihadist hands. And they pushed into a corridor on the north. Um, 
right now, uh, the Kurds are in talks with the central government in Damascus, the Assad government. They're in talks with uh, also other European countries. I think that hopefully uh, soon there will be there. I have heard that there have been joint exercises with Syrian Arab army and YPG. And there has been discussion that eventually the YPG will be a branch of the Syrian Arab army. They'll be sort of subsumed into Syria's national army. They'll have credit for all of the war. There'll be, there'll be rewards and bonuses and things like that. Syrian language will exist. Um, and there, there might be a relative autonomy. But what that will look like, I'm not sure. And that's for, up to them to decide. But the uh, situation is getting worse because Turkey is getting much more aggressive now. So I think there's a limited time to see what's going to happen. I think this election will be critical. Will be critical. Turkey's waiting to see what's going to happen in the election, I believe. So Trump would basically support uh, Turkey in this uh, situation. I think, I, yes, I do think Trump would support Turkey. I'm not so sure that Biden would not support Turkey. Because one must realize that the Kurds are a couple million. Okay. In, in Rojava, of course, you know, globally, 40 million you know, the largest group of stateless people, according to some scholars. Uh, Turkey, 80 plus million, second largest army in NATO, massive resources and economy, you know, big market. So will the U.S. choose the side of a small group of people in the Northeast to uh, help them in their struggle? I don't think so. I don't think so. And that's where I've always said the Kurdish PYD and leadership must be ready to make an agreement with Assad and with Putin and allow for a complete corridor of Syrian and Russian troops because NATO cannot cross that line. You cross that line, World War III, right? That's the main thing. And Turkey won't do it. They've already said they wouldn't do it. So I think that that's where it's going to end up. I have no qualms about that. My My main thing is sooner is better because the Kurds tried to play off a lot of different interests in the region and they lost Afrin. Right. As a result. So I think that now is the time. Make the agreement. OK, the revolution didn't succeed as we wanted to. No problem. we got to push forward. Right. There are bigger fish in this game. And it's ultimately our survival now as a people versus a Kurdish fascist and jihadist formings coming and ethnically cleansing everything. Uh, and even for the Syrian state, because if they take that land, it would be very hard for Syria to take it back. And, and Syria is still trying to take back Idlib, Afrin, and the area that Turkey has. So, ultimately, my hope, and from what I'm seeing now, is that an agreement will be reached with Damascus. It's a sad reality, but I understand. It's a, it's a reality, you know, and that's, mm-hmm. um, you know, what can we do? It's, uh, it's a part of the equation uh, for, for peoples. My goal is that if the conflict ends and Syria can be rebuilt, these people can live in peace for some time. I mean, it has been almost a decade of war. And I really think, you know, I think back to the kids that I met there. And, you know, you know, people might, you know, people, of course, said that while we were there, that there was, a, you know, human rights abuses, a child soldiers. Yeah, we had kids 15, 16 fighting with us, but their families were dead. What are you going to do if you're 15, 16? Your family's been killed. You were the only one to survive. And now you have nowhere to go. Of course, they went into the guerrilla. They picked up the Kalashnikov, you know. I want to see these kids live in peace. I really do. I want to see an end to the war altogether because they deserve it. They deserve to live in some harmony. They deserve to have a life instead of always under the bombardment and under aggression. So that's my hope. Yes. So what are your what is your analysis of the 
situation in the United States. I don't, I don't want to see Trump succeed, but I'm not enthusiastic about Biden. I, I see the United States is in a very bad situation at the, at the present time. I agree. And I, th- you know, I mean, it's like, what kind of uh, imperialism do you want? Do you want, uh, you know, and there's this uh, great meme going on uh, on Twitter. I love B-52 with Trump and a B-52 with Black Lives Matter sticker and a queer a rainbow flag. And, you know, uh, the, the trans uh, peoples in the military sticker on the B-52. They're both going to bomb everybody still. It's going to be what kind of bombing do you want? Do you want some that's more socially open and you got all the different diversity in there? So, yes, I agree. Trump is a, is a threat for sure. But the same system that produced, you know, Trump will still exist, right? This system that we have now cannot change with an election. It has to change with a mass movement. Now, you know, I endorsed Gloria Lariva. You were there. Um, and I voted for her. And I'm very happy with that vote. Vermont, of course, is not a swing state. But for the swing states, I have told comrades, choose on your own, your conscious, right? Whatever you want. I think that Trump will accelerate a lot of the social contradictions that we have in the U.S. I think Biden will alleviate some of these contradictions, but they'll still be there and they'll still be festering. And I'm concerned about I'm concerned about the violence. I'm concerned about right wing militias. I'm concerned about conspiracies like QAnon. I'm concerned about a lot of these things. I think that we're living in a very precarious time. I think the left should be armed. I really do. I believe it. Um, I believe we should be together. We should train together. We should be ready to defend ourselves. I'm not saying be offensive, but I want to defend, I want to defend my comrades. I want to defend vulnerable and, and oppressed and marginalized peoples, right? I don't want to be a victim. I'll never be a victim, right? So ultimately, I see the election as being a watershed moment in the sense that we're entering uncharted territory in the U.S., I think. And uh, ultimately, we might not feel it as much in Vermont. Um, you know, I have neighbors who are Trump supporters, farmers, local farmers. I live in Orange County. It's a little bit conservative, to say the least. And a lot of Trump signs. I talk to these people. I don't think these people are going to come and, and, and shoot us all up. Uh, I do think other parts of the country are very dangerous. You know, and I've been watching and speaking with comrades um, there have been groups I know, um, right wing militia groups that have spoken about me in their chats. We have some informants who told us. I'm not worried yet for safety and well being, but I think comrades should always be vigilant. Always. You know, having had family members be executed by fascists and having, and having, you know, generations of my family who have fought fascists, we must always be prepared. Always. You know. I'm seeing the brutality in places like Portland and Minneapolis. What I'm seeing is in in the middle stage of imperialism, the people at home don't see it so much. But as imperialism starts to decay, it starts to the tactics of the imperialism start to be put on their own people. What What do you have to say about that? That's absolutely true, and that's a that's a position that I've already taken. I've spoken about that publicly. I've said that. The, the, the war, the, the quote unquote war on terror for 20 years is coming home now. It's coming home to roost because all of the imperial wars that we've done, all of the training, all of the mobilizations, all of the tactics we've learned, we're now imposing on our own civilian populations. The police are militarized, right? We have now National Guard being called out. This is not, this is not a situation, uh, like, you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago. 
uh, you know, even like a Kent State. This is a lot worse. I mean, you have now police departments with armored personnel carriers, with Humvees, with uh, advanced machine guns, with surveillance technology. I mean, we're talking about, yes, imperial decline and those same tactics, those same policing tactics coming home. And that's why I've signed the Black Alliance for Peace Pledge. That's why I'm very much uh, involved with um, community control of police, uh, demilitarization of police. You know, when we talk about defunding the police, you know, a lot of people end up saying, oh, you don't support police. No, I do. I support uh, policing that's community controlled. That's democratic. You believe in democracy? Yeah, they should be accountable. Of course. Who will watch the watchers, you know? And I very much believe that. And I believe in community accountability for the police and community control of the police. So, yes, you're right. What we're seeing in Portland and what we're seeing around the country is very dangerous escalations. And also, these unmarked vans and unmarked uniforms and people just putting each other in the black vans. What is this? We're living again in, in, in Nazi Germany. I mean, this is very serious. And it's a, it's a question of civil liberties. And, a question, uh, and that's where we find some common ground again with some libertarians and things who are worried about this as well. But you know what's very interesting? The Alex Jones kind of conspiracy crowd that used to always, you know, cry about government and federal overreach, you don't hear them anymore. Why? Because they have an ally in the White House. Because they see this as their own, you know, doing. They don't see the federal government coming after them. They're going after their enemies, right? So those people are opportunists completely. You've seen the total bankruptcy of all of these ideas on the fringe right about federal overreach. And, you know, you remember Waco and uh, and uh, Timothy McVeigh and all this stuff. That was the ideology then was the federal government. Well, no, they love the feds. They want more state power. They want more sense. That's why it's moving towards fascism very quickly. I will not say yet that the U.S. is a fascist state, but the U.S. is a proto-fascist state. We're getting there. We are very close. And I don't know when that line will be crossed. But, uh, you know, it's it's a dangerous situation dangerous situation. And it was not only Trump's doing. Obama had a lot to do with it. Clinton, Bush, all of them. All of them helped to create the situation we're living in today. It's interesting how you talk about how the Republicans talked about the police state and now that they have Trump, they support it. Yep. One of the things I've always seen is that Democrats will protest war when there's a Republican in office, but then when there's a Democrat in office, they're never, they're nowhere to be seen. Of course not. And in fact, the Democrat, the last Democrat, Obama got a peace prize. Got the Nobel Peace Prize. Are you shitting me? The guy who's bombing all these other countries expanded the wars of Bush, by the way, increased the amount of wars and the amount of aggression, drone bombings everywhere. And you know, overthrew Gaddafi. Listen, you don't have to agree with Gaddafi, okay? That's fine. But you can't go overthrow a government and now they're selling slaves in slave markets in Libya. It's a total failed state. They completely decimated the whole state. And of course, Hillary Clinton's laughing. We came, we saw, he died. This is barbarism. But Democrats were silent. Silent. Even Democrats are silent on Julian Assange. They're silent on Edward Snowden. You know, they, they were pretty much silent on Chelsea Manning. So we've seen exactly what you're talking about. When it was the Bush era, oh my God, Dick Cheney and the neocons and the war and all this stuff, the biggest protest. When Obama came, it was all beautiful and rainbow colors and we have a black man in the White House. But that's that. it doesn't matter who's in the White House. I don't care if it's a woman, a trans person, black, brown, whatever. If they're an imperialist, they're an imperialist. 
Doesn't matter their identity. You know? I always tell, I tell people, being an identity doesn't make it revolutionary. Even the Nazis had kinky sex, I always say. That doesn't mean that it's revolutionary. What's revolutionary is your political ideology, not how you identify. So ultimately, that's where, that's where we come down with. Right now, we're seeing that the Republicans are not principled and the Democrats are not principled. It's all opportunism and careerism and how I can get ahead and how I can get into power, solidify my power, and then do whatever the hell I want. And that's a problem. It's a very big problem. And it shows that a third option is necessary. We need alternatives. We can't keep relying on these two, on these two bloated corporatist parties. They're warmongers. We can't do anything with them. We need alternatives. And, and I don't care what anybody says. Jill Stein did not steal the election from Trump. Russia did not take the, did not make the Trump win. It's not true. The Democrats did it to themselves and they have to accept it. They have to accept that they, uh, they put a corporatist woman on the ballot who everybody hated. A lot of people hated, but she still got three million more votes than Trump. But we have this stupid electoral college. What can I do? I didn't make this system and I want to change it. But that's the system we're living in. So we've been talking for about 50 minutes. Are there any other subjects you want to bring up that you want to have in this this interview? Um, I don't know. Whatever you want. If you have any last things that you wanted to to address. Well, I think we've covered an awful lot. Can you uh, tell me, the listeners, how to find you? Sure, of course. Um, I have a website, www.christopherhalali.com. My last name is H-E-L-A-L-I. You can find me on Twitter, at Chris Halali. And uh, please get in contact, um, you know, reach out. There's been a lot of great interviews I've done. You can see them online. Uh, you can see writings I've done, um, you know, different works. You can check out the issues page of our website um, and some of the things that I've been campaigning and struggling for. And the biggest thing is I hope that all your listeners will get out there and continue to build workers' power, continue to speak to their neighbors, continue to build a big mass movement so we can move as quickly as possible and build a better world. That's what we have to do. Thank you, Chris. Well, this has been uh, VMN, uh, Volume 2, Episode 1, recorded on October 24th, 2020. Thank you very much, Chris, for all your time. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.